Good morning, everybody. My name's Rob Sturdy. I'm the Anglican chaplain to the Corps of Cadets at the Citadel. And I do travel around quite a bit to different churches. And when I say that I'm the Anglican chaplain to the Corps of Cadets at the Citadel, some people look confused and other people look disappointed. And the root of it is you don't look very much like a chaplain at a military college. Some people say you look like a convict, but you don't look like a, a chaplain at a military college. And uh, I'm in disguise, so it works okay. Sometimes people will say, you look like Jesus. And I'm not sure what Jesus looked like, uh, but uh, I have learned it's easier to look like him than act like him. Yeah. So I wrote Trip a few weeks ago, and I asked him if I could come to St. Paul Somerville and say a really important thing to you, and that's thank you. Whether you know it or not, St. Paul's uh, supports the work of St. Albans Chapel at the Citadel, um, and you help us do a lot of things. You help us gather young men and young women for worship every week. You help us gather them for Bible study every week. You help us keep the door open on that campus to people that want to grow in their relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. You help us keep that door open on a, on a pretty demanding campus for people that need counseling and encouragement. We do about six to eight hours worth of, of counseling every day. Uh, so you help us keep the door open for that. Um, we, do, we do addiction counseling. We do self-harm counseling. Uh, there's a lot of really enormous needs down there. And you help us do that. You helping us reach people who do not know Jesus Christ with the message of the cross. You helped us take a hundred kids down to Bluffton where we baptized 11. Some of you have seen those videos, 11 new Christians. We're going to a camp on the lower slopes of Caesar's Head just outside of Greenville next weekend. And we're going to baptize three more and we're going to confirm one uh, the following Monday. And we can't do any of those things uh, without your help. So uh, not everyone can go to college campuses and reach a generation that we're all interested in reaching. But you can help send people who can go. Yeah, and we can't go without you. So I'm here to say thanks. If you're with the diocesan church women, I want to say thank you to you. I know you all are in every congregation. You're incredibly generous to us. It means a lot for you to support us. The Citadel has not always been the easiest place for women to go to college, okay? And it's helpful for me to be able to tell our women there are Christian women who are behind you. They're praying for your success and they're going to see you through this thing. So it means a lot. Last but not least, I, I would shrivel up and die if somebody did this to me. So I'm not really loving my neighbor as I love myself. I, I do see Davis. And he's a son of St. Paul Somerville, but now he's a son of St. Albans Chapel as well. And I really respect you and I'm really proud of you. So, congratulations to y'all. That's a, that's a family achievement. And I'm going I'm to miss you. Davis just graduated. Did you know that in December? Uh, with, with honors, and he's got this great job. And when I went to the Citadel, I just had to spell my name correctly. So we've come such a long way in between me and him. Yeah. I want to speak with you this morning about what it means to be a theologian, which means I've already lost some of you. Snooze. Like, I can't imagine anything more boring than talking about being a theologian. Well, hold on. It's not that boring. It's a compound word. It comes from two ancient Greek words, theos and logos. The first means God. The second means a word. So a theologian is anyone 
who has a word about God, who has something to say about God. And in my experience, everyone I've ever met has something to say about God. Even atheists have something to say about God, even if it's nothing more than He doesn't exist. We are all theologians. All of us have something to say about God. Now you might think, uh, because there are as many theologies as our people, that, that everyone would have a, a, a magnificently different opinion. But Paul says you can really boil them down to just one of two. One of two theologies that really count. Paul says in today's reading, there are people who speak about the cross and people who do not. And these are the two great theologies of the whole world. Paul says that the people who speak about the cross, they are able to see God at work in things that other people might consider worthless and useless. Paul says that people who speak about the cross are able to see God at work in things like suffering, in things like defeat, and even death. But what about the people who don't speak about the cross? Well, he says they think the cross is foolish. And because they think the cross is foolish, they're not capable of seeing God at work in the suffering of Jesus Christ. And because they're not capable of seeing God at work in the suffering of Jesus Christ, it makes them very hard to see God at work in any kind of suffering. In defeat, in dignity, or death. So where is God at work? God is at work in the big important things of life. Victory and conquest, health and prosperity. Those things are really nice. And I'd rather see those things than the other. But what I've learned is that my life has not been a sustained experience of those things. I have had victories. And I have had popularity, but it's been interrupted by times of suffering and times of sadness, by times of illness or injury, by times of loneliness that I can't explain. It's been interrupted by the death of people I love. These things are going to visit everyone in the room. It does not mean that God sent them. But if you think when these things visit you that God has packed His bags and left town, then you will spend a large portion of your life as a functional atheist. And the tragedy of it is, at the moments in your life when you need God most, you'll think He's gone. But not, not someone who knows the cross. So this morning, I want to talk with you about being a good theologian, someone who speaks a right word about God, someone who knows the message of the cross. It's the message about God's revelation to us in the suffering of Jesus, which means it's a message about God's presence and power in life's darkest moments. This message is heartening to people who are suffering, and it's absolutely practical for everyone in the room. So here's what I want to do. Three things. Why do people think the cross of Jesus Christ is foolish? Why do they think the world is wise? 
And what kind of power can we gain from understanding the weakness of God? I'll be using 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31, if you follow along. We'll begin with this, the foolishness of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in verse 18, the message about the cross doesn't make any sense to lost people. But for those of us who are being saved, it's God's power at work. As God says in the Scriptures, I will destroy the wisdom of all who claim to be wise. I will confuse those who think they know so much. What is the message of the cross that Paul is talking about? Well, it's not just about one day in the life of Jesus. It is the entirety of the message of His life, death, resurrection, and current life at the right hand of the Father. And it begins like this. God so loved the world, He sent His Son. His Son became a human being. He was not born into a wealthy family. He was born into a poor family. He was not born in a great metropolis. But He was born in some pathetic, podunk, backwater town. A lot like the one I came from. People don't know that I was born in the Holy Land. I don't know if y'all knew that. But I was born in Alabama. And uh, I have this in common with Jesus. He didn't go off to school and become educated. But everything we know is it was 30 years worth of hard blue-collar labor. And at the age of 30, he decides that he'll be a religious teacher. And at the end of his ministry, which is very short, by the way, his own friends hand him over to his enemies. He's tortured and killed. He dies penniless, friendless, naked, and totally alone. Everyone around him says this man is cursed. Everyone around him says God has clearly packed up and left town for this man. Even the disciples. Read the road to Emmaus after the service. What do the disciples say on Easter Sunday? We thought he was the guy. But we saw how he died. We were wrong. Well, they were wrong. Here's where they were wrong. God didn't pack up his bags and leave town on Good Friday. That was the nearest God had ever been to this world. They were wrong. What does the cross teach us? It teaches us about the nearness of God when we think he's moved on. It has two really important things to say, by the way. How tempted are we when we undergo suffering, when we undergo hardship, when we undergo pain, when we undergo loss? How tempting is it to cry out and say, where are you? I thought you were going to stick around for this. If you were here, this never would have happened. Maybe he's not here at all. What's the cross of Christ teach you? It teaches you that when you and I think God has packed his bags and left town, we're often wrong. God didn't send it, but it doesn't mean he's gone. It means he's close. And his power, what is it? Is made perfect in weakness. The cross teaches us this. The cross also teaches us that sin is no great roadblock to the love of Jesus Christ. 
The worst day this planet ever had was Good Friday, when God came to visit us. Not only did we not recognize Him, but we considered Him our enemy. And what do we learn about the love of God in the presence of sin on Good Friday? We learn it's no roadblock at all because, because what does Jesus die on His lips? Forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Suffering and pain doesn't mean God's abandoned you. It might mean He's closer to you than He's ever been. Sin doesn't mean He'll turn away from you. It's no great roadblock to the love of Jesus Christ. The cross teaches these things, and it makes no sense. You've had 2,000 years to get used to this message. It makes no sense. You know what makes sense is what Paul calls the wisdom of the world. What happened to those wise people, he says in verse 20? What happened to those experts in the Scriptures? What happened to the ones who think they have all the answers? Didn't God show that the wisdom of this world is foolish? God was wise and decided not to let the people of this world use their wisdom to learn about Him. Instead, God chose to save only those who believe the foolish message we preach. Jews asked for miracles. What's that mean? Show us some power. Greeks want something that sounds wise. Give us a message that makes sense. What makes sense? What makes sense to me is that when I see someone of great achievement, when I see someone of great wealth, when I see someone who's healthy and happy and it looks like they have everything in their life put together, what do I call this person? They're blessed. Hashtag blessed. But did you ever think we were so miraculously wrong about Jesus Christ, weren't we? Is it possible we might be wrong about who we think is blessed? You heard of Andre Agassi, right? Some people say he's the greatest tennis player of all time. I, I used to love watching him grow up. He had long hair, kind of like mine. But if you've read his book, you know it was fake. What a man of immense gifts and talents, of achievement and wealth and fame. Isn't this a blessed man? Did you read his book? One of the things that really shook me about the book was how many times he said, I hate tennis. I hate tennis with a passion. I despise tennis. How's that possible? We know why he hates tennis so much. Because in the book he said that his father's affection was tied to his success on the tennis court. And in the book, he'll say, he never told me he loved me. Is this guy blessed? This sounds cursed to me. And so he is on the run towards achievement after achievement after achievement, but you got, he's running from something. 
And apparently it's easier to win a Grand Slam than to say, I really hurt. Something's broken here because of what was done to me. And it got worse when I did things myself. Apparently it's easier to pursue achievement and gather fig leaves and costumes than just to admit what's really going on. We are often hurting people, deeply flawed, who do things we don't want to do. But the wisdom of the world can't see it. The wisdom of the world only knows how to call this man one thing, blessed, and they're wrong. So what's the solution to it? Well, the solution is the weakness of God. That's what Paul calls it. The weakness of God. Stronger than the strength of the world. My dear friends, remember what you were when God chose you. The people of this world didn't think many of you were wise. Only a few of you were in places of power. Not many of you came from important families. But God chose the foolish things of this world to put to wise to put the wise to shame. He chose the weak things of this world to put the powerful to shame. What the world thinks is worthless, useless, and nothing at all is what God has used to destroy what the world considers important. I'm going to tell you a story about a man that some people thought was worthless and useless and nothing at all. Name's Chris Christofferson. Rhodes Scholar. Born into a really important military family, he decided that he would walk away from the military life to become a singer in Nashville. And he got a letter from his mother on the day that he did it. And the letter said, you have brought great shame to the family. Don't ever speak to us again. And they never spoke again. What the world thinks is worthless and useless and nothing at all. What do you do when you think you're worthless and useless and nothing at all? What do you do when your own folks tell you that? Well, he did a lot of drugs. And he drank a lot. Became a great musician. And he's touring with some people that play with Johnny Cash, the 13th Apostle. You know the people who toured with Cash did on Sunday? They went to church. And so Christofferson's on this all-night bender, and he gets drugged to church by his friends. And he doesn't want to go, and he's got bright red eyes, and he stinks. And the preacher preaches the message about the cross. And the preacher says, if you'd like to know Jesus, put your hand in the air. And he said, who would be so stupid? And then he said, my hand went up. I didn't even know what I was doing. And the preacher said, come on down. He came on down. And then the preacher said to him as he knelt in front of him, son, do you want to know Jesus Christ? And he said, I don't know. And the preacher began to pray, and he said, a love and forgiveness I didn't even know I needed washed over me. He wrote about it, wrote a song about it, 
I'm not a musician. I play the kazoo. But this is, this is the song he wrote. He said, um, Why me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? Lord, help me, Jesus, I've wasted it so. Help me, Jesus, I know what I am. Now that I know I needed you so, help me, Jesus, my soul's in your hands. What the world thinks is worthless, useless, and nothing at all is what God has used to destroy what the world thinks is important. I wasted it. Not just once upon a time, yesterday. I know what I am. I needed him when I came to Christ 20 years ago, and I need him right now. My soul is in his hands. How do I know that he will always have me? Well, you got to remember the message of the cross and how it began. How did it begin? God so loved the world, He sent His Son. God already loved the world, so He sent His Son. Amen.